Hello, Appendix N Book Club listeners. This is Oliver Brackenbury, editor of a brand new publication, New Edge Sword and Sorcery Magazine. From an in-depth essay on C.L. Moore by Cora Bueller, to a review of Kirk A. Johnson's latest book, to an original story by SNS veteran David C. Smith, to a story by emerging author T.K. Rex, New Edge Sword and Sorcery covers the genre's past, present, and exciting future. Made with love for the classics and an inclusive, boundary-pushing approach to storytelling, there is something for everybody. Check it out at NewEdgeSwordAndSorcery.com. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hey everyone, welcome to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 131, where we are going to discuss P. Jelly Clark's A Master of Gin. Joining me today is that ministry agent, Hoy. Bowler hat and all. And today we are also joined by the game maker behind Huge Boar Games, the co-host of the RTFM podcast, photographer, feminist pornographer, and interactive media artist, Maxwell Lander. Max, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Max. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be fun. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about how you got into role-playing games and what your history is with reading speculative fiction so we can know a little bit more about you. Yeah, I mean, one of those happened before the other, uh, probably unsurprisingly <laughs> like most people, but I uh, I have always, primarily fantasy is the thing that took my fancy the first. I read uh, quite a bit of science fiction and horror now as an adult, but I didn't when I was uh, a wee youth. I grew up... Um, I grew up super poor and my mom has not a single nerdy influence, like just not a single bone interested in anything nerdy. Um, And so had no idea what I was reading, but her one singular monetary rule, she was like, if you keep reading, I will keep finding money for books. Uh, Yeah. And so I was that kid that like, walked around reading a book. People are very concerned about the fact that I walk around reading. Uh, but it was kind of the, the the main entertainment of my youth. Part of it just because I was a huge nerd and then part of it also because of money. But then when I was um when I was 13, I moved to the big the big the big TO uh, and uh, and met some some old homos. <laughs> who were playing this game called Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and I had like, I had not a lot of friends. I was a very miserable teenager. Uh, and um, and I didn't have any queer friends. I was the only out person in my entire high school in downtown Toronto for the first three years of high school, which is a wild experience. Um, and so like, just did not have good, good social lines. And somebody was like, hey, do you want to come play this nerd thing every Friday night? with a bunch of adults, like legit adults. I was 13 and I think the next youngest person was 23 years old. Um, (laughs) I think the oldest, I think the person who, like the game master of that game, I think was in his mid thirties. And I was like, whatever, yeah, sounds great. (laughs) Super fun, it's me, a teenager. Which now looking back, I'm like, I guess some people might've been concerned about (laughs) that age discrepancy. Um, but it was like really fundamental for my survival of my teenage years, like finding, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. We played third edition. I'm a, I'm a third edition introductory, uh, person. Uh, and we played for years every Friday night. And then it kind of like ebbed and flowed. And a few years ago, largely, um, 
largely due to the pandemic, I just started delving into more indie games because I got kind of tired of the the D and D grind. And uh, since then, I haven't really looked back. It's been kind of all indie all the time. Very cool. Very cool. What was the um, what were some of the things that you were looking for as you sort of look at indie games? Since you're just different terms of different types of expression. Funnily enough, like, no, like, I am still like a classic fantasy gamer for the most part. Um, I think it was a lot was like fatigue, just like prep fatigue. Mm -hmm. I tend to be, I tend to be the GM and, you know, did the thing for a long time where I was like, oh, I'm going to read those Sly Flourish blogs and books about how to be like a faster no prep GM or what. And it just, it didn't stick. Like, I think for me to enjoy the game. I could say a sassy comment and say that I think it's what D&D requires. But for me to enjoy D&D, I think the prep is required. Um, and at least like newer editions of D&D. And that is just something that did not fit with my time anymore. Um, and I, uh, I started to be a game designer via video games and VR um, and realized that that meant that I could probably also start designing role-playing games. In fact, it's like, quite easier to get into designing role-playing games than learning how to become a programmer slash developer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I just wanted something that was like smoother and easier and had like a lower cognitive load. But like mm -hmm. the style and flavor, like the genre was still the thing that I wanted. Right. Um, but yeah, so I'm a little, a little smoother. Right. So by prep, were you thinking specifically um, because you needed to be aware of like, I mean, three, three E is relatively mechanics heavy compared to, for example, first or second edition. Uh, was it the mechanics or was it your suspension of disbelief in the world? What, what were the, the major prep elements that were, were helping you, you know, get to where you needed to go? I think this may not be true for current D&D &D players, but for me, a lot of the D&D &D that I was engaged in um, was the kind of D&D &D where they're is a lot of stuff happening in the world. There is a bit of a predestined story. Like it's a little bit more linear. Like you can make some choices, but you know, there, there, we know a little bit how it's going to end or how people are going to um, direct things. And it was that it wasn't so much the mechanics because I've been playing three and 3.5 and Pathfinder for so long that those were there actually to a fault. Like I have a hard time with 5e because of how ingrained all of the 3.5 rules are yeah. in my noggin. But um, yeah, it was the it was the kind of like classic three to five D&D adventure module problem where you need to you need to balance a lot of plates narratively mm -hmm. uh, yeah. that I found just a little bit too much. Um, and I found that I really liked just following what players wanted to do. It was like, oh, you want to do something wild that I didn't anticipate? I would like to go in that direction. And I'd rather just have a game that helps me follow you as players than uh, kind of guides you through the thing that I have planned. Right. That makes sense. I also think there is a cultural difference in the game design be between the, the culture at the table difference with older school styles of D&D versus third, fourth, and fifth edition. I think in third, fourth, and fifth edition, there's very much this assumption that you're going to be having balanced encounters, which is why we have things like challenge ratings and encounter levels. And I do think with the kind of shared assumptions that are going into that style of gaming, I think that does require a lot more prep work, where with older school styles of D&D, 
there's often no expectation of balanced encounters. You might run into something that you can easily take care of, or you might need to run away from the thing as you see it flying toward you. And that's a perfectly valid decision to make in the mm-hmm. game because it might kill off the entire party. Um, I, 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 so I can also, I can also see how starting with third edition would kind of make it hard to really kind of embrace this low prep, no prep style of gaming. It has been, it has been super fun and I, but it has been hard to get over a lot of the, the general lessons and ideologies around like third to fifth D and D play and just embrace like the chaos from older editions or retro clones or a lot of the new stuff that's out that kind of has um, procedures or guidelines or just embraces the chaos, right? Like there's lots of games out there right now that are like, do the fun thing and roll a die if you think it'll help. Like that, then that's pretty much exactly. the entire game, right? And I am was is the number yeah. high on the die? Then yeah. it worked. If it, is it low, then it didn't. Yeah, <laughs> that's the rule you need. Mm-hmm. That's all you need, right? Like, and I think like I move closer and closer to just playing that exact game every time I play a game. Yeah, uh, totally. So when it comes to your 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 love of literature, do you have any books that you would recommend our listeners check out for inspiration for their gaming? Yeah, I mean, many, but I I, I narrowed this down so that it would be like more recent in my reading, uh, like books that I've discovered more recently that I thought were really fabulous. There, um, anybody who has talked to me about books has probably heard me at some point say Becky Chambers. <laughs> Becky Chambers, Becky Chambers, Becky Chambers. Like it, it, and uh, she has a, a recent series that is, I think, started last year. That's the Robot and T Monk, Robot and Monk series, and it's two short novellas. Um, and the first one is a song for the Wild Built, I think. And they are, I don't know. I just think they're maybe the best books ever written in the history of literature. <laughs> just, like, no, big, no big deal, <laughs> but they're. Uh, there are these like fabulous tales of two people trying to communicate from entirely different cultures and share the experience of what their lives have been. Um, and it's the, and it, it's hugely conversational and it is these two people just like going on a little bit of a walk, uh, together, getting to know one another, but it has a lot of fun fantasy elements. It has a lot of fun sci-fi elements because one of them is a robot. So they're there. Um, and it's just really like emotionally beautiful and quite evocative in its, and I have recently really started enjoying shorter uh, fictions. Um, yeah, it has like all the elements, it has some lovely queerness in there, which all of Chambers uh, books do. Um, that was the first one. Um, and the, the second one is also a series of like short novellas and um they're by someone named Emily Tesh, and I found them kind of randomly. The second one is called Drowned Country. The first one is called Silver in the Woods. And they have this, they're kind of like fairy tales. They're a little bit fairy tale-y. Um, again, have surprising queerness. This is a theme for all the things that I enjoy reading. Uh, but have this fun, like, pseudo-mythology uh, kind of unknown Feywild magic feel to them um if you were a person who liked say the green knight they might be in line with a thing that you would enjoy uh yeah and both of them i think are going to have more they both have two novel like both of those series have two novellas in them and they've been kind of the highlights of my last couple years of reading they're very 
they're very aesthetically and atmospherically rich. And I feel like that's what I look for a lot when I'm, or that's what ends up inspiring the way that I game or design games a lot, actually. It's interesting that you mentioned novellas too, because I would say, Jeff, that uh, from our whole project, right, that we've often found that uh, short stories actually are much more effective as um, sources of inspiration for gaming, right? Because a novel, you get so swept up in the overarching narrative that you can't like pick out incident and, and mood as much than short stories. And I think also short stories are actually much more easily uh, adaptable to film and other medias than, than a whole novel is, in, in my, my experience. If I look at the, the list of my absolute favorite books that we've read as a part of this project so far, oftentimes they are novel-length fix-ups of multiple short stories. Yeah. So I don't really know where in that theory of yours that lands. But for me, it's definitely the Jack Van Stein Earth stories mm-hmm. and the Michael Moorcock Elric stories that just get me the most excited. Right. I think that you can sort of do a sort of a heightened experience in short stories and novellas that sometimes with a full-length novel, you feel like you have to make it a little bit more grounded and, and you have to fill in all the interstitial stuff. Whereas, you know, if it's a fix-up or a short story, it's like, okay, Let's get to the good stuff right away, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, when I pull from a novel, like when I'm inspired by a novel, I'm usually pulling like a short story bit out of a novel that is inspired by gaming, right? It's like this, like this singular encounter or this one moment of this novel is the thing. So I feel like I'm, I'm rebuilding a short story often out of a novel. And so it makes sense that short stories would already be like, they just feel like encounters. They Mm -hmm. feel like, this is a singular encounter, great, or this is a singular session. I don't know about y'all. I don't have a, I, since the pandemic, I haven't had like a um, a regular ongoing campaign. I play a lot of RPGs, but I play a lot of one shots. And so things that give me the framing for like something satisfying in a short bit uh, are really, really appealing. So going ahead and moving this conversation to the book that we're discussing, uh, let's go ahead and take a look at which edition of the book that we are working with. Max, what edition are you working with? I think it's it's just like the most recent mass paperback version. I don't even know that it, yeah, like it's the tour.com paperback edition 2022 literally the most recent it could be yeah. I nice i didn't even realize it was in paperback because i ended up getting the hard the hardcover one mm-hmm. um so i've got the the tour.com 2021 hardcover mm-hmm. edition um and it's got this art by stefan martinier um i'm so terrible with anything french or spanish very well known uh montreal science fiction artist Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, and it's got this beautiful cover with the clockwork brain of the interior of the ministry and presumably Fatma walking down the stairs. Very beautiful cover. And in addition to reading it this way, I was also listening to the Audible audiobook narrated by Suhaila El Atar. Um, and that was also a um, very lovely audiobook reading of the text. And Hoy, what are you working with? Uh, I'm working with the ebook, uh, which also has the short story, um, A Dead Gen in Cairo, which I don't know if was included in, um, I know it's not included in your hardcover edition. Was it included in your paperback no. there, Max? It is in the paper. I didn't read it, but it is in the paperback uh, at the end. I got to the end and I was like, I think I need a break for a hot second. And so I'll come back to this. I'm going to come back to this short yeah. story because I want to read it, but... Yeah. Uh, I took a little break, but yes, it is included in the paperback. Yeah. After my epilogue, I just have 
a page and a half of acknowledgements is go. all I have. Yeah. Um, the reason I bring that up is uh, one of our people in our patron book club was having a hard time with the book until he started to read the short story. And then he said, oh, this sort of clicks for me in terms of the, the characters, how they're introduced. Um, but we'll come back to that. So taking a look at our Hygaxian word of the day, Hoy, do we have an official word? Uh, we do. Hold on. Onager. As in, I want to speak to your onager. That's right. <laughs> it's on uh, page 359 and 360 of the ebook version. Uh, it says an onager-headed gin. Uh, onager is a wild ass from the, in meaning donkey, from the uh, Persian area of the Middle East. Uh, the reason I picked that is, A, it's kind of a cool word, but also it's also the term for a Roman kind of catapult. So that seems very uh, Hygaxian, you know, because he would always like all this weird, you know, military. So <laughs> I presume it means that this, this catapult kicks like a mule or something like that. That's probably why they, you know. So there you nice. go. Nice. So now we can go and go ahead and step on into the library and start chatting about the book. Max, what did you think of P. Jelly Clark's A Master of Gin? I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than I think I thought I would. (laughs) Um, I've been having a hard time, slightly related, but I've been actually having a hard time getting sucked into books um, recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, And which is irregular for me. I usually read quite a bit. And I found this one read faster than it felt like it was going to. It's not a small book. It's definitely not a novella. and I felt like it kind of had a little bit of an action movie pacing to it, which I really yes. appreciate. Like it felt really speedy. And I think often when you get into these like mythology based fantasy, like epic fantasy kind of vibes, they, I find they rarely give me action movie pacing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one did a pretty good job of doing that. Also, I didn't read any, I didn't read anything about it beforehand. I, it was on my list to read before this podcast because of the of one of the awards that it won. I was like, oh, cool. The Hugo and the Nebula? Yeah, it's like it won a bunch of awards. I'll, give the, I'll add that to my list because probably it's good. And that was it. And so not going, going in not knowing much at all, um, I think actually made me very pleasantly surprised by things. If I had looked up a kind of book that I would want to read, I think everybody, everybody would have recommended this book. Um, spoiler, it's all the gayness. But uh, <laughs> that, I wasn't, <laughs> that I wasn't, like, I didn't know that was going to be in there. And so the second that was revealed, I was like, oh, now I'm a thousand percent in because I'm so used to reading fantasy novels where I want to read queerness into the characters and then it never rewards me. And this one, I was like, seems a little gay. And they were like, yeah, actually, totally. And that just like fully sucked me in on, on top of a lot of compelling world building and like uh, interesting cultural test zones and all of the stuff that is in there. Um, yeah. It it's not only merely gay. It's really most extremely gay. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's almost exclusively gay too. Like there's that. Yeah. That's great. It's wonderful. Other world yeah. is supernaturally gay. Love it. It's got it. <laughs> Overall, I really enjoyed this. I had a lot of fun reading it. I really agree with what you're saying about the pacing of it. Um, I do have a lot of quibbles. Um, There were a lot of things that really, to me, um, challenged my suspension of disbelief at times. But overall, I had a ton of fun with it. The, The main gist of my quibbles are that I think it took Fatma and Hadia way too long to realize that the imposter had the ability to control Jin, that seemed like that was so obvious so early on. 
And for how incredibly talented and smart these two characters are, it was really hard for me to believe that it took them as long as they did to piece that part together. And the other, and I've got a bunch of other quibbles too, but the other kind of big one for me is the believability of the twist that it was Abigail Worthington. The reason why I have the hard time with it being Abigail is like is has a couple of things. But the, the, one of the biggest ones is that, for example, Alexander thinks that she's a big ditz, and Alexander is her brother. And presumably, if he thinks that she's a big ditz, she's been a big ditz most of her life. So there's these moments where she's acting like a ditz, and he's like, oh, there's my ditzy sister. But then it turns out that he's surprised that she's actually the evil mastermind behind this whole thing. But if she was the evil mastermind behind this whole thing, does that mean she had been pretending to be a ditz her entire life from childhood on to like convince her brother otherwise? And then when she was uh, when she was Al Jahiz, Al Jahiz is like saying all of these like really amazing like revolutionary things about like you know taking down the billionaires and like really fighting for the oppressed. But then it turns out she's just this like rich white girl who just wants war and. I don't know, like a lot of that stuff was really challenging for me to really believe. But I thought that this book is littered with really cool, with really cool side characters, beautiful world building, lots of really fun ideas. And more than anything, I really agree that the pacing of this book is super fun and makes it very readable. Hoy, what are your initial thoughts? I wanted to like this book a lot more than I did, which is not to say that I didn't like this book. Um, But, um, and where I think it falls down is not in content or world building. I think it's really more a matter of execution uh, for me. I think the world building is absolutely incredible. I would definitely read more books set in this world. Um, the society that's set up is really interesting. Um, I just found all the supporting characters so much more interesting than Fatma herself. Um, I really liked uh, Hadia. I liked all oh, like the, the the fat cop. I liked you know the the various people they encounter on their investigation. Um, you know the various degrees of surliness with the jinn and not the jinn. Uh, you know other supernatural creatures. As to the pacing, I definitely get where you're seeing it, it was cinematic pacing and all that. But for me, it was still strange, and maybe it was just like you know the time shift this week and all that. I still like. I read each, each chapter, but at the end of each chapter, I wasn't like, oh, I have to read the next chapter right away. I always did, but I just didn't have that feeling driving me forward. Um, if I had to put my finger on it, the two things that I thought maybe were part of the execution issues were, um, this is uh, Clark's first novel. So I felt like he had so many ideas and he wanted to put them all in the novel which is understandable because especially in today's publishing climate, you might not get another bite at the apple, right? So get all the ideas out there, like your Ryan Murphy story, right? Uh, just get them all in there. What Hoy's referencing is that um, in their patron book club, I was talking about how um, I've got a friend of mine who works in Hollywood as a writer, as a television writer. And he was telling me that apparently in the Ryan Murphy writing rooms, Ryan Murphy's got a big thing where he's like, if you have an idea, don't hold it back. I want all of your ideas in that script, which is why like American Horror Story often just has so much going on. And some people love that about American Horror Story and some people hate that about American Horror Story. But I definitely think that's a big thing that's happening here. There is so much going on. We've got Jin and Angel and goblins and like, yeah. all of this stuff is thrown into this thing right right um so yeah it was all that you know so, the, so the, to me it felt 
and maybe this is a little bit going back to circling to your gaming thing, it was like the prep happened um, and the prep was important to me rather than like, oh, I'm going to tell a story and I'm going to fill in the details as I need them. So it felt like I'm going to build the world and I'm going to put a story into this world. Um, and again, nothing wrong with that. But to me, it's, it, you know, that was um, sort of weighing on me a little bit from for, for this particular story. And I felt it was a little bit sort of like the YAification of epic fantasy a little bit. There's a tendency to make like the character, you know, just that little bit extra snarky. I don't mind that, but it just didn't seem very, it didn't seem snarky of the period, right? It seemed very, very modern, the sort of like the dialogue and the, the sass. And again, I don't mind, but I, I would have liked it to have sort of a more 1912 feel to that. If they're, if they're how, how are you sassy in 1912? I, I definitely feel like I lost track of it being 1912 and also it being steampunk many, many times. Like right. those were background yeah. details that I do not feel like I don't need them. I'm not a steampunk person. So the fact that it actually wasn't super present was a plus for me. Cause if it had been super steampunky, it would have been like, Oh man, it's too many bowlers. There were a lot of bowlers. Yeah. But like, yeah. Yeah. Steampunk is weird because it's, it's kind of, of weirdly um it's weirdly reactionary even though the people it attracts are often very progressive and liberal the, the the genre itself is weirdly reactionary so uh i can even say yeah okay if it moves beyond steampunk that's fine too um but again i don't want to say that i'm I, I wouldn't even i'm not even damning this damning this with faint praise i just wanted a little bit more considering sort of the reputation that the book has and but i'm still would absolutely read another book by clark and especially in this world to, to see more about what's going on um, and again, I love all the supporting characters. I would love to see a Hadia, you know, short story. Um, I was also saying to, to Jeff, I work at a university and my university has a lot of, uh, people, uh, first generation, first generation college students and, and a lot of them are young Muslim women. And they really reminded me of Hadia because they're sort of navigating that traditional and modernity at the same time. Yeah. And I think Fatma and Hadia side by side are really cool contrasts for different ways that you can be a modern woman in a Muslim world, um, kind of more, but it still feels very, feels, still, still feels very of today, less of 1918. But um, I, I recognize I'm throwing a lot of criticisms out here. I did really enjoy that. But the, the last kind of bit of criticism I want to throw out here before I want to throw this back to Max and see what you think about this is also, I feel like with the elements of exploring the experience of being a woman in a world of misogyny, or the experience of being dark-skinned people in a world of racism. I feel like we the book does just enough of it so that we acknowledge it exists, but does but doesn't do but because it doesn't go all the way with it, it makes it feel like the stakes of misogyny and racism are real low. Like, you know, we've got this main character who is the only woman who's been allowed to have this kind of rank within the uh, ministry and she's still somehow getting this incredible assignment. It's the most important thing happening in the city or probably the world at that moment, but she's able to have this assignment without any real pushback. And I thought it would have been interesting if like, maybe we had discovered she got this assignment because her male superiors wanted to see her fail and she didn't or something. I wanted some explanation for why that was happening or with racism. When City goes to go meet up with um, it's Madame Nabila and Madame Nabila won't let City into her house because she's dark skinned. And she kind of like, and then is kind of going on a, on a rant about how the dark skinned people are, are thieves and criminals. 
But it's like, so it seems as though the world that's presented to us is one where the stakes of racism are microaggressions. That's like the worst that's going to happen to you with racism is that somebody's going to be rude to you. And that the worst that's going to happen for you in terms of being a woman is that like there aren't other of that many other women like you. I don't know. It's like I I kind of either wanted it just to be a total non-issue where we don't look at it or discuss it at all, or we really go there and we explore what it's like for these people who are having these really challenging identities in in, in this particular time. But I don't know. What do you think about it, Max? I I tend to like have differing thoughts about these things because this is I sometimes I think it's about who people are writing the book for, right? I think that queers writing books for queers don't need to put the threat of queer on every page because queers know it. We add it to it. We will read that into adding a queer character. Right. And I think that that's true of almost all marginalizations is that like, if one literature can be a break from that ever present reality while still acknowledging that it exists. And I think that might've been what was happening here where it's like, this is still a world where those stakes kind of exist, but I'm not going to spend a lot of my time, um, and and writing in the violences of those realities not misery, uh, not misery pouring in other words <laughs> yeah but and, but i get it right like i do think that like the stakes are for me there's those moments where they're they're in the secret queer bar which to me is the only is the biggest moment where you get that old timey feel right it's very uh, which is funny because it actually reminds me more of like 1940s states than it does like 19. I'm sure, I'm sure that there were secret queer bars and bars all throughout history, but that's my association with like right. a, a secret queer bars. Uh, and, and whether it was a queer bar or it was like gin and non gin romance, like it was just like, here's where things that aren't like society doesn't really love go. Yeah. Um, and I will for sure read onto that the classic saloons of history, right? But, right. Uh, yes. And yeah. And I, and so I don't know. I do feel like, this is such a shit thing to say. I, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to I'm going to eat my tongue. Sometimes I feel like this happens. When Cut I'm out your tongue it. and put it in a basket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am. It's happening to me. I have my little tongue basket. But sometimes I feel like this is a thing that happens when men write women, right? And that is like happens with what? When men write women. When um, men write women. And that and that is that like the the experience of that misogyny is secondhand, right? Like if I mm-hmm. if I'm writing. Uh, if I'm writing something that involves a lot of people of color, my knowledge of what racism, the experience of racism is only observational, right? And and so it's going to limit the effect. And yes, I can get a sensitivity reader because it's not offensive. The presentation here is not offensive. Uh, It just might not be like hitting the same way that it is when it's clearly been experienced. I had some of those criticisms about the queer romance. Because to me, queer romance is fundamentally different than heterosexual romance. And I often am, I don't know, I'm often disappointed when queer romances go all, you're the only one for me. We're going to like, we're all these like overpowering kind of sentiments that that yeah. are generally a function of like heterosexual patriarchy and it was just mean we don't feel them that's not that like it's not to say we don't feel that way when we love people yeah. but i think there is kind of a different framing of romance and so some you know toward the end like one of my notes was like the temptations of the seal were really weak my biggest mm. criticism was like this is the seal it is supposed to be presenting you with the thing it knows you want that like will break your willpower and it was like oh do you want your partner to be a slave 
And it's like, no, of course not. Of course not. That's not tempting. That's not te- like you're writing this. Like, well, and also it's basically like, the equivalent of like, do you want to look through her fa- Facebook messages and see if she's like thinking about other women? Like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so um, I have a question about, and it's sort of related to this. So specifically, since I'm the uh, cishet guy in this particular conversation. So the queerness, I'm not looking for homophobia or, or uh, and again, we're not talking about, this book is not necessarily about oppression and Jeff just saying maybe a little bit more and, and Max is saying, well, we know it's there. So for me as a reader, I don't need to see it. Um, but what I would have liked to see is maybe the specificity of queerness in 1912 Cairo, uh, not necessarily homophobia, but what does it mean to be queer? Like wh- how is it accepted? And we know that in a lot of societies, you know, male homosexuality is strictly verboten, but then it can't conceive of lesbianism. So it's okay if two women walk down the street and hold yeah. hands or something like that. Right. So, yeah. well, and for the record, I'm not saying, I think there needs to be more of it. I think, cause I think the way that the way it expresses queerness, I think is a great example there. There it, it's, it's not something that we like homophobia is not something we experience in this story at all. Right. But we do experience some racism and some misogyny. Right. So if if this is a world that the racism and misogyny was dealt with the way the queerness was dealt with here, I'd be totally fine. Right. I either want it to feel realistic or I want it to be something that we're just not worrying about at all. Right. And with the queerness, I think it does that fine. With the racism and misogyny, I felt like it walked a weird middle line that didn't quite work right. for me. Well, my, my, I guess my question is, I don't have, I'm, again, I'm not looking for uh, whether it's oppressive or whether it's not even addressed, um, you know, or it's totally normalized. What I'm interested in is, is what is, uh, again, me being the history nerd, like what is it actually like to be, even assuming that this is a divergent history, which it is, and it's, you know, a much more modern Middle East with Jane and all that. What is it actually like to be uh, queer um, in 1912? Is there, like, is it noted at all? Is it completely normalized? Is it, you know, even if it's not prejudice, is it noted? It's like, oh, okay, that's, you know, you're, you know, going out with the yeah. half gin woman, <laughs> you know, right. Yeah. Uh, um, so I, 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 want, I want a little bit more of that flavor. Uh, you know, the, the yeah. bar scene helped, but you know, I think it's interesting because it, it's one of those weird things where like authors know they can just remove that shit, right? Like, do they know that? Do they know that they can just actually like remove the horrific mentalities of the world and history, right? Like it doesn't need to be, and that doesn't need, means it needs to be fan service or it needs to be this like, utopic idealized world right is that the story you're telling yeah it can just be like they're queer they're ladies stuff's up yeah whatever and i and totally and i do think that like by teasing because i think that i i felt like the novel wanted the queer relationship to be really triumphant and Mm. i think that you lack a little bit of that triumph without some Mm. of the stakes right it's the same with her being this one Yes, I know a lot of women tear other women down when they feel threatened. I know that's like a real thing in the world or whatever. I don't know a lot of queer women who, when they meet the other only hired woman in their workplace, treat them like shit. I actually have never encountered that. I was, I was in fact, a woman for 27 years. Uh, this isn't like, and I don't know a lot of people that actually treat that. Most people I know are like, well, yeah, I got to protect, like, I got to protect you. We got to stay together. And there's that moment, like in that whole introductory period where Fatima's meeting Hadia, it's like, she's kind of a shit, you know, like she's, she's quite rude. She's not. And maybe that's, I mean, her character is a little antisocial. Her character doesn't seem to like really connect with people often. Um, But like the triumph of being this 
all woman team in this workplace that is all men where that means something like in order for that to mean something it has to mean something right and i feel like yeah. that's a little bit what you're saying is like well without without those hardships it doesn't really mean anything and it can just be their cool rad women yeah right, totally. that can, that's enough that you that is totally that's enough fine. for your story but you're telling me it's triumphant you're telling me it's this achievement yeah. and it needs to kind of overcome some kind of hardship in order to feel like it's an achievement. And yes, yeah, thank those, you. Weren't, those weren't present. Maybe, the, is, are they present in the short story? I wonder if that's, is that there in the short story? Is that context we're missing? Mm. Uh, I don't know, but this is, uh, I think it's timing-wise, it's time for us to start transitioning this over to a gaming side of the conversation. But I'm curious, if you were going to run a setting like this, what kind of a system would you want to use for this? I want to use every system. Let's just roll the dice. Is it good or bad? <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's going to be on the table? What 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 die are we using, and what's on the table? Yeah, there's um, there's a game that I have only recently discovered called Kismet, okay. um, which is rapidly becoming one of my favorite games ever. The the mechanics of Kismet are that you have your Kismet. It's a score. You roll to determine. It's a d twenty system. Um, you. Uh, yeah, and when you you have your kismet, if you roll over your kismet, you succeed, and that what you rolled becomes your new kismet. And okay. so your what you're going for is always changing, right? And so if your kismet's sitting at three, you're like, oh, I can do something really big right now because I'm pretty yeah. sure I'm gonna succeed. And if I do, it would have been such a small window of error that it might as well be a really big failure. And then if you're if so you it's kind of like Jenga in a way. <laughs> a little bit. There is there's like a definite like bargaining kind of gambling feel to it. Yeah. Um because when you do something phenomenal, when you get a 20, you're like, my next action is going to fail hard. It's going to fail no matter what I do, right? <laughs> and that's actually like, as a player, that's super compelling. That's a compelling narrative prompt. What am I going to do that I know is going to fail, right? And it's yeah. totally different than any other play experience that I've had as a player. I actually, what's funny is the person who ran the game for me said that they had run the module that they were running in multiple systems and the outcome seemed very similar. They had run it in like classic D&D &D and they were like, actually what happened was incredibly similar. The system did not hugely impact the trajectory of this uh, narrative. And that might be because the person running it was interpreting it in a certain way or whatever. Sure, um, sure. But as a player, it felt so different than most other games. And I feel like it would pair really well with this kind of because like the setting can be anything but then yeah. everything has this interesting stake to it um and that might be a catch-all answer because those are definitely it's definitely the system that i would run most things in and it was designed specifically to be able to drop into most adventure modules um and uh but yeah i uh i think i mean there's part of me that wants to say something like Troika to add like a little bit of chaos because I love a little bit of chaos. Uh, but it feels, it feels like there are many moments in this, in this novel that feel classic fantasy. And so any yeah. classic fantasy game could fit in really easily. Um, I play tunnel goons with this system. I love tunnel goons. I'm a, I'm a known tunnel goons fan where I'm like, just I'm not familiar with tunnel goons. Can you, can you sell me on tunnel goons? <laughs> I mean, I can try tunnel goons is a like rules is extremely rules, like kind of pseudo retro clone. Um, 
And but it it has a very simple single roll mechanic at the center that is two d six, and you're trying to roll over um, a difficulty score. Whenever you have stuff, you can add to it, like equipment or a stat, but there's only three stats. And when you get over something, the difference um, in how far over you are is also the damage that you can cause. And damage is caused by bringing down the difficulty score. So the thing, one of the things that it does that is so elegant and so simple, and I'm so mad that it's not a thing I thought of as a game designer, is things become easier the more successful you are at them. And so something like combat, if you're fighting something that has a difficulty scale of 10 and you roll a 12, you've, you've dropped that difficulty score to eight. So the next time anybody does anything, it's easier to hit, which means combat literally never does the D&D thing where it goes on forever, right? Because oh, it, I love off. this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It can, right. it, like, oh, it I want to play Tunnel Goons. Nice. To tunnel Goons is amazing. <laughs> right. It's like that momentum yeah. that you get there. It's like the yeah. Highland Paranormal Society, right? Nature Man. Yes. Nature, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's very um, cute, too. His, his illustrations are, are lovely. So. Yeah, it's also a single page. I've used it to introduce a lot of people to the idea of RPGs um, because they come with a, oh, isn't it Dungeons and Like, I want that fantasy Dungeons and Dragons experience. And I'm like, great, you don't want to read the PHB. You are okay reading the single page Tunnel Goons game. <laughs> Right, like you are. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's a lot of sense. It's it's, but it's it's just one of those things that like you read it and then you're like, oh yeah, that's fine, and then you start playing it and you're like, no, this is so clever, so clever. <laughs> um, but I really like, yeah, those light systems so that I can focus on what's happening in the world to be like everybody's going to roll one thing. And then in terms of um, while you're reading this things that you encountered that you thought would be really fun to steal and use in your games? What are, what are some of the things that you encountered here? For me, that was largely characters. This goes like a little bit back to the yeah. second, the secondary characters are yeah, really yeah. good. I think it's actually like, I do not, I do not think it's controversial to say that the secondary characters are the, like are the strongest part of this book, even though oh, I like other parts they're great. of it, they are a hundred percent the strongest part. So like, Zagros, the librarian, the librarian. (laughs) Zagros is great. That is just a grumpy giant guy that's a little (laughs) bit elitist, but like soft hearted. Like that every time. That will get me every time, even in the context of a library, right? I really like, like, I think libraries as settings for games are really compelling because they just can contain like endless worlds through a variety of different ways. And so having a library that is kept by this, like, very powerful but very soft grumpy guy into it um and then to also have him turned into an adversary later mm -hmm. in a way that's also very kind of compelling and also really sad it's 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 really interesting what what the author does with zagros yeah yeah i mean i think that's like the interesting that is where a lot of the interesting conflict in the book comes from is like there are these this whole cast of characters that all of a sudden become threats that were friends, yeah. right? That can become threats. Um, extremely sad. That It would be so hard to gameplay that. Unless they're, if they're NPCs, if they were, like, this would be so hard to put PCs in the role of Jin in this world. Yeah. That would be incredible. Unless, unless you were doing kind of a, um, a World of Darkness style campaign. So instead <laughs> of like Vampire the Masquerade, it's like Jin the whatever. Um, and um, I, I think that could be really interesting. But I, I love that you're, the main thing you want to steal as a character, because that's also my answer. Mine is this very like kind of random character we don't spend a whole lot of time with, but Mahmood, 
the the guy who's also who's actually the secretly dormant. two twins <laughs> right. um, who are working the same job. I think there's a lot of fun stuff you could do with this. I was talking about this in the patron book club. You know, like the idea of like even in just your regular fantasy role playing game where you've got like the guy who works behind the bar at the inn that you in the town you go back to and he's just always there no matter what time of day it is. And then maybe like over the course of time, um, the characters may or may not start to realize that like he's literally always there and there's something not right with that. And maybe even people are starting to kind of like in town, like gossip about how like he's always there. So maybe eventually one of the two of them, these twins who are pretending to be the same person, maybe one of the two of them is actually up to some pretty wild stuff. And in your investigations, it takes you back to the tavern, but you may or may not realize that half the time you're there, you're talking to the person who is involved in this stuff, but the other half the time you're not. I think that could lead to some really interesting gameplay. Yeah, he's a he's he's a very fun character. Also, where you get only a little bit of the homophobia of the world from, unfortunately, is the weird thing where they're like, Oh, I won't tell that you're two dudes if you don't tell that I have <laughs> Boy, what are you stealing? Um, I mean, uh, there's two ways to look at it. Obviously, the characters are great. I mean, literally, you just take the entire world. The world is fascinating. You just play mm -hmm. a game, not even stealing. It's like just pick your system of choice and play in this world. Um, it seems uh, you were mentioning. It seems actually like it would be fine in Five E. Although Shadowrun would probably be my choice, um, just because Shadowrun is already totally geared for this. Um, yeah, but um, I think the characters are great. the The set piece I would steal. I mean, I love the whole invasion of the ministry, but the set piece yes. I would steal actually would be the um, have the player characters in Fatma's position when they go to the the the, the cemetery uh, region, where they're the ones who are actually sort of the bad guys, and all the locals, but they yeah. don't necessarily realize it, and all the locals are actually kind of right to be kind of pissed off at the player characters, right? Um, and you know, maybe the villains, maybe the villain is manipulating them, but the locals still are right. And so that's, that, that but would, in that moment you are representing the oppressor. Right. Right. So uh, I think I, yeah. that, that would be a good, good set piece of steel. Um, but yeah, the game, the whole, that's interesting. the world as a whole, I mean, yeah, yeah. Just any place in that world would be, you know, or specifically the Egyptian part. And then the sub-Saharan Africa, I think would be really fascinating to play out. Um, and, and Max, I apologize because this question is going to kind of exclude you for a moment, I think, unless you've also read this. Have you read Tim Powers' Declare? No? Yeah. Um, so, Hoy, um, ha so we both have recently read an alternate history, early 20th century world with Jin. Right. Which, which world do you think is more fun to play in? Would you rather play in Declare or in A Master of Jin? Um, if I was playing, playing. And playing. Not game mastering. If I was playing, I would probably rather play in Master of Jin. That represents to me more like uh, having a party because she does have a party, even though it really focuses on mm -hmm. Fatma. It is like I can play in here and do my thing. Conceptually, I really like the way the Jin exist in um, Declare. Um, there is a really, really good uh, scholar, I think, of Islamic mythology on Twitter, Ali Alomi, I think, who has written these really long threads about Jin. And my guess is that the jinn as represented here are actually closer in this particular book, a master of jinn are actually closer to how they exist in uh, Middle Eastern mythology. Cause jinn is not just like, Oh, it's not a D and D like item on the monster manual. It's like, it encompasses this 
whole range of society and, and creatures and powers, right? I mean, we have, yeah, you know, so. Um, Which actually I think is interesting because it, it makes me think about how, like, but I started with second edition. Yeah. And with the second edition monster manual, there's a whole section on Jin, And you had um, um, Ifrit's and Merids and all the different type of gen that we saw presented here. Yeah. And I thought that that was interesting that apparently that's semi-accurate to the mythology. Right, right. Um, just so we don't see like the sort of like more ground level, like the ones with the donkey heads and stuff like that. That's, that's I think, fascinating, yeah. you know. Um, and that they exist in society, right? That they're not this thing that just, they're not just monsters, that they exist in a society and that they have their whole, their whole quirk. So I think that would be a lot of fun. Uh, even though my normal preference and i think jeff we've been a little bit more like that recently to play a more sort of human-centric game than we have yeah um, yeah so um well and even even back in the day i've always been kind of more prone to playing lower level DD games and higher level and gin and angels were usually like really high level monsters mm-hmm. so they never really made it into my games much but have either of you had much experience with gin or angels in your games um, only in Andy Action's game, where the villain is an is an Ifrit, um, the hot, hot, oh, spring, cool. hot Springs Island game. Um, nice, actually, Ma- Max. You're shaking, shaking your head now. Yeah. No, I don't think I have. Like I've done high level stuff before, but I don't think we've ever had Jin or Angels. Involved. Does this make a, you want to incorporate them more? Yeah, I mean, I think they are rat. Like I think it's just a rich. It's a very like rich, deep area of exploration for different kinds of like supernatural beings in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, The angels, I tend to like, I lean in, I lean in the chaotic demon realm versus the angel realm. So that is not the reason the angels never really appear is because I'm like, Oh, the symbology just means literally nothing to me. And I don't find it super interesting. So let's go the other way into the devil's. Although Uh, I guess with, this book and um, declare they're attempting to make the sort of the weird, awesome biblical angels reappear, you know, the wheel, the multiple wings, the, the, the eyes, you know, they're truly inhuman. Now, Jeff, you had mentioned that you felt the angels were, you know, like just too much frosting on the cake for this particular story. How did you feel about that? Max having the angels and being very ambiguous in here. They were a bit much. I feel like, I feel like they, they were a bit of a catch-all. It was like, we need some bigger power to kind of explain beyond this. Like we need something that is powerful enough to have done uh, these big, huge moves that we're talking about. Like there has to be something more powerful than Jim. There has to be something more powerful than Ephraim's, right? Like it's not like, uh, yeah. It, and the fact that they weren't real angels, but were kind of unexplained, like part of me is like, maybe just have made them real angels like, do, do we like, know that they're not real angels well, we or is really that know. something that she yeah. that that she has to keep telling herself to like kind of hold on to her faith i mean everybody keeps says like they say a couple times that they like they call them angels like they refer to them as yeah, angels, yeah no one's really sure power. right they're yeah not, yeah nobody right. really knows what they are they're just like very ever I, sometimes when you do that like gods and angels things where they're a little bit removed from society because their concerns are so much bigger than the average concern of the world. I'm a little bit like, yeah, Yeah. why? Why? We don't know. Well, I will say that there are angels. Well, the second short story definitely has an angel in the title. Um, Mm. uh, The first short story without giving anything away does involve angels also. So, um, and um, 
that's I mean, they refer to that, right? Because she's saying, oh, the maker, right? When she meets the Council of Angels, that's referring to the first short story. Um, that's what, the first one? Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, which is uh, gotcha, a gotcha. dead gen in Cairo. Um, and the other thing I thought was interesting, though, and again, I think Ali Alomi mentioned this on Twitter, is that the, the jinn actually can have religious faith. So the jinn can be Muslim or they could be pagan or uh, other things like that. So I think that was very interesting, too, that they're not, you know, they're they're a step above humanity, but they're not like ultimately completely alien the way that the yeah, angels which also are. tells us they don't have access to all of the full secrets either yeah. the, the the secrets to why we're here and what's going on is still significantly above their pay grade right yeah yeah um what and speaking of the gods i'm curious what did you guys think of the use of ancient gods and god magic in this because it's pretty subtle but it's it's present yeah again <laughs> like these i mean i think it's just the like unless it's unless it's really present i think it's an important part of the world building because we're also talking mm-hmm. about like a real world belief system and culture right this isn't like yes it's fantastical but this is a this is a real thing that exists in the world or has existed in the world not gin whatever you understand uh mm-hmm. and so i think it's important to like keep those threads in there they tend to like again for me this story lived all in the characters and so like yes there was compelling world building backing up those characters the reason Jin are interesting is because of that the reason that a lot of the characters were interesting is because of their relationship to the world building but because it was a little bit more subtle i was like i don't know that it hugely impacted my read of the book if that makes sense yeah one part i thought was really fun with that though was the part where i forget who was talking about how the gods change and how it's annoying that everybody is so slavishly adheres to stories that were written thousands of years ago about them and it's like they've changed since then like (laughs) get over what you think what you think they're about probably a mod right but uh not 100 probably Uh, a mod Dear, dear precious Ahmad, the other thing that I would steal from this is just like (laughs) the creepy character that doesn't know that they're being creepy that just pops in out of an alleyway every like two sessions. (laughs) And no smoking is bad for him, but does it anyways. But then once he becomes more and more crocodilian, he can't even smoke anymore. And he's like, oh, I'm going to miss these. (laughs) Such a cute note. Oh, my mouth doesn't hold a cigarette anymore. And I'm sad about it. It's so cute. I I love him so much. Also like save the world or whatever but like that's less cute that's less cute than his fumbling with cigarettes near the end yeah yeah yeah, in some ways, this story has a lot of kind of Buffy the Vampire Slayer angel elements to it, because I feel like that's a very kind of a thing you would see with like one of the demons in, in Buffy or something. Right. It's nice that there's like the humor that like, I feel like those characters kind of bring in some of the humor yes. into it. And I always love a, a, mm-hmm. a little comedic interlude. And I feel like Ahmad is frequently a, a comedic interlude while being this like potential pseudo god, right? Like, it, <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And and again, I think the supporting characters were funny. I think they were trying to make Fatma and, and CD funny sometimes, but I think it was much more successful with the supporting characters because I think it's really more organic to the supporting characters when they're funny. Yeah. So we are running out of time. Um, Max, do you have any kind of final thoughts or one last thing about the book that you didn't get to say that you'd really like to? The... Oh, I have two last thoughts. The first one is read City of Brass. It's really good. <laughs> um, cool. The whole cool. trilogy is extremely good. Also has gin and oh, this is a similar thing. Um, the second is the intro chapter is one of my favorite intro chapters in a book I've read in recent history. 
It's really good. Yeah. It's very, really, very solid introduction to the story. It just throws you right in. It throws you right into a moment of like extreme anti-colonial, just like like violence you're cheering on. It gets that it gets complicated later when you find out all of the things that are happening, but it is this really nice, like, oh, here's a bunch of like colonial white folk and just get slaughtered. Great. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah, it's a really strong out the gate that first chapter. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good yeah. set piece. I could definitely see it like in a Hammer movie or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Max, do you have any projects that you're working on that you would like our listeners to be aware of? Yeah, I mean, RTFM always uh, is the thing that I like to push people towards. Um we are we are going to be doing a holiday uh, special where we talk about each other's games, which is going to be a little bit weird. I will not be on the episode about my game, and Aaron will not be on the episode about their game. So we will be doing a little different format. Fun, um, gonna we're gonna smack talk one another without the other person being able to respond or whatever. Um, that's the big. And then actually, in the new year there may be a very exciting thing that involves encouraging people who work around RPGs to just do weird little passion projects um, that I'm hoping we're going to put very together. Cool. I love it. And if you would like to be found on social media, where can people find you? It's <laughs> a big question. Uh, in the potential <laughs> post-Twitter world, I am right, right. uh, almost exclusively uh, Maxwell Lander on most places, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Tumblr, whatever other one has popped up by the time this happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we could just all do a takeover on Truth Social. I mean, just, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. No, thank you. No, it'd be, it'd be, yeah, no, it's terrible, but it'd be hilarious if all like the marginalized people just took over, <laughs> did the re- exact opposite to the right-wing people on their social networks. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. So, Hoy, where can folks find us? Yeah, well, assuming Twitter itself has not burned down, uh, you can always drop us a note at at appendix underscore n on Twitter. Uh, also, uh, you can email us at uh, appendix n uh, appendix n book club appendix n book club at gmail dot com. Um, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, such as Apple Podcasts. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yeah, so we have been really blessed over the years to have a slowly growing Patreon community. Um, And we've been really grateful for that. I will say for the first time in our five or six years of doing this, we're actually having a bit of a decline in our patronage, which is kind of a bummer. So if you're listening to this show and you enjoy what we do and you would like to support us, please head over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show us your support. It really means a lot to us. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to the folks who joined us today for our patron book club. That would be Robert Coleman and Adam Styers. I would also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons whose names I have pulled from the hat. I'd like to say thank you to Eric Hallstrom, Eric Johnson, Robbie Fioto, Jeremy Harper, Rick Byrne, William Souter, Gentle Reader, Carsa Torvald, Andy Action, and Dan Alexander. Thank you all so much for your support. Also, our patrons choose which books we are going to cover. The winning title for episode 136 is Philip K. Dix to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. And episode 137 will be William Gibson's Neuromancer. So we've got a nice cyberpunk double feature. When this episode drops, we will have the poll for episode 141. And the theme for that poll will be Swords in Space! 
And for Swords in Space, we will be voting on Edgar Rice Burroughs' A Princess of Mars, Gardner F. Fox's Warrior of Larn, uh, Robert E. Howard's Almerick, and Lee Brackett's The Nemesis from Terra. So you can choose from those four titles. And that is our episode for today. Max, thank you for joining us. It's been a lot of fun having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a hoot. Max, it's yeah. been an honor and a pleasure. Okay, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>